Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why, Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we are asking Jinhee Choi what makes a movie good. Please visit whyradioshow.org for our archives, show notes, and to support the program. Click Donate on the upper right-hand corner to make your tax-deductible donations through the University of North Dakota Secure website. We exist solely on listener contributions. Years ago, I read a review of the movie Casablanca that called it not the greatest movie ever made, but the movie most people think is the greatest movie ever made. This idea stuck with me because I think it's both true and interesting. I once hosted a philosophical discussion of Casablanca and we sold out the theater. Of all the movies I presented, no other even came close. It is commonplace for philosophers to point out that being good and being popular are not the same thing. This is a foundational distinction in aesthetics, the philosophy of art. But that review was doing more than just this. It was making a claim about the general population's assessment of goodness. It was not claiming that Casablanca is most people's favorite movie. It's argued that a majority considers it the best and that they have looked at all of its merits and judged it as a standard for all other movies. Is it really? I think that's a conversation for later on in the episode. What concerns me is the underlying question of whether general audiences are able to make defensible judgments about movie quality. Are average moviegoers sophisticated enough to have a worthwhile opinion about the quality of art? There just doesn't seem to be much back-and-forth discussion about whether movies are good anymore. Instead, in the United States especially, the news spends more time on ticket sales than it does on movie reviews. A new release is judged largely by its opening weekend. When I was growing up, word of mouth tended to drive movies. They were sleeper hits that started slow but eventually drew steadily increasing audiences. Those don't exist anymore. If a movie doesn't make money right away, it's relegated to streaming. It never stays in theaters simply because it's good. But also, once it's viewable at home, the experience is very different. In the theater, movie watchers share the film with strangers. They are focused rather than distracted. The visual and audio quality are outstanding, and the screen is many times larger than the viewers. The movie feels like an event. But in our living and bedrooms, we're usually alone or paired off. We watch with one eye on our phones, we pause to get snacks, and the size and quality of our television is determined by our incomes. The same movie can be wonderful in IMAX and sleep-inducing on a 32-inch screen. Now, I suppose someone might suggest that the best movies will always seem great regardless of how we watch them, but I don't think that's a defensible position. It might be true of Casablanca, but it's absolutely not the case for Lawrence of Arabia, 2001, The French Connection, Avatar, The Godfather, Blade Runner. These are movies that play with our location in space. They want us to feel overwhelmed by expanses and suffocated by crowds. The final scene in the Shawshank Redemption of the beach on Zawahaneho is supposed to be a moment of exhale from exile. It's still a good movie on a small screen, but you simply don't get the same emotional surge. Movies are a visual medium. Someone once told me that the litmus test for movie quality is whether or not you can follow the story without the dialogue. That if you can't tell what's going on by just watching, the movie isn't very good. Again, I don't know if that's true, but it's compelling and something I think about a lot. Of course, 
This will have as much to do with how well the actors control their bodies as it does the cinematography, which is why Marlon Brando is a great actor and Keanu Reeves isn't. It's why Anthony Hopkins is terrifying as Hannibal Lecter, and only little kids have affection for Jar Jar Binks. The subtlety of human movement drives a good story. Again, movies are a visual medium. On today's episode, we're going to ask what makes a movie good, but we're going to do it with a specialist in South Korean cinema who lives in England. That means that whatever judgments we make are going to have to apply cross-culturally with different expectations for how we look at things, how we express ourselves, and what actors reveal with their bodies. It will add to the difficulty level of our assessment. But at the heart of it all will be the question of who gets to judge what goodness is. Is valuing art a democratic process? Should we take an egalitarian approach to audiences? Or does value judgment require knowing the history of cinema, the illusions a director makes to other films, and which films are genuinely influential or not? And whose experience should we prioritize when the wealthy have home cinemas and teens watch everything on their phones? We've all seen lots of movies, and we all have our favorites. But are there right and wrong ones to watch? And are there movies like Casablanca that really ought to be considered mandatory viewing? I think blockbusters and CGI have made us forget that all movies are works of art. And many of us have bought into the idea that the quality of a film is synonymous with the amount of attention that it gets. Yes, movies are products, but they're also processes. Both making a movie and watching it are experiences over time. There has to be more than an idiosyncratic reason why the 1978 version of Superman still feels definitive, but I can barely remember anything about Avengers Age of Ultron. Is this the movie's fault, or is it just me? I refuse to let go of the idea that there are some films that are just objectively good. Let's see if our guest agrees. Jin Hee Choi is a reader in film studies and the head of the film studies department at King's College in London. She has two PhDs, one in philosophy and the other in film studies, and is currently working on a book about the portrayal of girls and their sensibilities in horror, chick flick thrillers, and other genres of the South Korean cinema. Jin Hee, welcome to Why. Hello. Uh, thanks for inviting me, and it's my great pleasure to have a conversation about what makes film good. I was surprised <laughs> that you, you're talking about Casablanca. I was like thinking more about Citizen Kane, like Citizen Kane is always ranked at the top. Uh, but yeah, Casablanca will work as well, of course. Before I respond to that, because I think that that's a really important point, let me tell the audience that um, if they'd like to participate, they should share their favorite moments from the show. Tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is always at Y Radio Show. You can always email us about the show at askyund.edu, listen to our previous episodes for free, and learn more. Obviously, please rate us on iTunes and Spotify so that the others can uh, find the show, and we'd very much appreciate it if you'd help us make our 15th season better than even the previous ones by visiting yradioshow.org and clicking donate in the upper right-hand corner. Now that the business is done, that distinction between Casablanca and Citizen Kane, I've watched Citizen Kane, and I know that a lot of other people have too, and many people have the reaction of understanding why it's influential, but they also find it kind of boring and oppressive, that it's much slower than our modern sense of cinema. So this actually already, without even any rehearsal, gets to the main issue. How much of Citizen Kane being better than Casablanca or vice versa is about the audience 
enjoyment and how much of it is about the influence and the standard setting and and all of the innovation that Citizen Kane was responsible for? I suppose, I mean, there's always this kind of question about like a preference versus like aesthetic judgment. So when, when someone says, oh, I like this film, uh, it's there's a kind of implicit recommendation of that film as being good or merely just expressing your preferences and such. And so I think there is a kind of imbalance in terms of, uh, you know, mass preferences for Casablanca versus film scholars or film uh, cinephiles appreciation of Citizen Kane and such. And so, but I, I think the, the question is whether can can we support our expression, judgment, or preference through the films themselves, I guess, uh, rather than like which one is more popular or which one is more um, enjoyable. So whether my kind of preference or uh, judgment can be supported by the films themselves, or is it more as like, as you say, the environment uh, of the film viewing situations or sound, you know, kind of audio qualities and such. And so whether it's contextual or uh, something in the, the films themselves, I think that's what kind of seems to be uh, kind of going back and forth when we talk about this kind of uh, uh, questions. So is it then possible to analyze the film separate from the experience of the film? I mean, we can talk about the Mona Lisa or uh, a Van Gogh painting in terms of the structure and the balance of colors and the, the brush strokes and things like that. And we tend not to talk about the room that it's in, in the museum, or the fact that both of these paintings will have glass in front of them to protect them. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about film the same way as if the viewer was, I don't know, neutral and passive even, and that the standards of goodness are totally within the film themselves? Um, I guess there's some like I, I guess like we don't go to see any film like we, uh, out of vacuum, right? I, we, we kind of read the review or we've seen the trailer or we know the director or as you say, some stars and, and, and such. And so we are always informed about the work. And I think that definitely affects our interaction with the films at home or in the theaters and such. So I, I don't think anyone will rule out the fact that we do bring uh, so, some of our kind of cultural backgrounds or preferences and such. So definitely the experience matters, but uh, how how much can we think it's all just subjective? There's There should be some sort of like something that we can hold on to, especially when we want to have a conversation about a particular film. And so we can kind of rule out some of the kind of more specifics, uh, but then it, it may kind of, I guess it comes down to the work uh, themselves. But I do see what you're getting in the sense that, uh, yes, there's no kind of ideal kind of like film critic or scholar can kind of say, this is how it works. So uh, there is a work and then our interaction with it definitely are the grounds for thinking about what makes a good film. But at the same time, well, we cannot just kind of say everything is subjective to an individual experience and such. And so there is this kind of 
particular experiences versus something that we can have a kind of grounding in the films or certain environment and, and such. And so um, I, I don't think uh, it's one or the other. I think we have to take into consideration both the individual experiences, but at the same time, the context or environment in a way. So definitely if, if you know someone is eating popcorn like right behind me in the theater, and if <laughs> if I could if I couldn't really follow the dialogue, then my experience is not something that I can completely kind of I don't know put forward to say that this is a bad film or is this a, like a bad film experience. So I think there is a kind of some kind of gap or balance to be made between experience and the aesthetic merit or you know whether it's a worthwhile film to watch or recommend it to someone else i suppose this feels like a weird question and and i i hope uh you understand what i'm getting at but i'm curious when we're analyzing the film what counts as part of the film and what i mean by that what popped into my head was one of the innovations that George Lucas brought with Star Wars that most people don't know about was that up to that point in the United States, there was a, a rule that you had to have credits in the beginning of the film. And he refused mm-hmm. to do it. And that leads to the most, fam- you know, the famous crawl and the opening shot, which yeah. was unique. And that and that changed everything in, in film and, and, and gave people more freedom. Are things like the credits, uh, the end credits, the opening credits the the are they part of the film or is the film really contained in a box that it's from the first shot to the last shot it's the first note of music to the last note of music and that we really do look at it framed without any extraneous material at all um i mean i personally would include uh you know opening credit and end credit but when i teach a film students you know even if i told them to stay until the end because it's kind of your you know kind of showing your appreciation of all the people involved in making of one film it's look at all the credits like you know how many people are involved but as soon as you kind of see the last shot of it they leave or sometimes there's a kind of hidden shot at the end of the film and I told them to stay until the end, but then they regard, <laughs> disregard my, <laughs> my kind of suggestion and then, and then leave. So well, they are college I mean, students. I, yes. <laughs> that's, but that's the I, job. I think, <laughs> I think the, kind of, the duration of the film is from the opening until the end, not just the story. And some of the films like um, uh, Dance in the Dark, um, there is a kind of credits kind of blurry uh, in the beginning with really kind mm-hmm. of like in you know, a kind of a symphonic music in a way. And then that that kind of blurred image, in fact, signals as protagonist uh, Selma is losing her eyesight throughout the film. And so definitely credit, I think like people play with credit and a kind of, um, and definitely it's part of the film, I would say. And I think normally the duration of the film includes, uh, you know, opening uh, credit and and credit as well, um, so that's kind of uh, the kind of expectation. But not everyone follows um, that kind of you know kind of it's a, you know, someone can leave um, in the middle of the film. Of course, if they find it boring, some people fall asleep during the film. And so uh, again, I, I don't think um, individual experiences is. is uh, is irrelevant, but 
definitely there are ways in which spectators or audiences can ignore what is expected of them to appreciate from beginning to end. How much authority does a film have? And what I mean by that is there are some films that pay homage to classic uh, shots and classic camera movement and things like that. And people who are knowledgeable about these shots will get out of the film and say, oh, this is reminiscent of this, of, of a, a Kurosawa, or this um, mm-hmm. is an homage to whatever. And the movie is sort of pulling you out and making you think about the craft, but also the movie wants you to be completely absorbed in the movie and forget the 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 craft and forget the 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 process that was behind it how much of that is the authority of the movie and how much are you required to or expected to listen to what the director has in mind in terms of being absorbed or thinking about it on a meta level does that question make sense yes I think the kind of the your kind of the butt part is what's important. So like even if uh, someone doesn't recognize, uh, we can identify it's there, so to speak, right? So there is an allusion to some like classical films or uh, whichever. And so some spectators, audiences can miss that. But if we point that out to the person, then that person can identify it's there. It's not something. It's not something. It's a kind of relations that. Uh, uh, audiences uh, with uh, certain backgrounds or well, you know, like in philosophy, we call like well-informed viewer audiences right. will, should be able to identify, right? And then like, say, if you fall asleep after an hour, The, the Lord of the Rings, I yeah. watched like three times at the first <laughs> one because it takes forever for the hobbits to leave the town. Oh. <laughs> and like, you know, and I, I tried like three times and then fall asleep after an hour. And so that doesn't mean that, you know, the film ends there, right? And so there's, you know, uh, and people will explain, you know, because it's an adaptation of such and such. And so there, but I mean, even if I fall asleep every time, it, I, I'm not going to deny, you know, what what's going to follow. Uh, in the rest of the film that I miss, right? And so um, I don't think the filmmaker's intention determines, but there is uh, the kind of what you would say, something in the films themselves, the relationship between, as you say, sound, image and and sound, or illusion, or the kind of relationship between the beginning and end, or surprise in 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 the middle, or a film's coda or narrative. So there, there are things that are there that we can agree that they, uh, you know, in the films rather than completely determined by either film's intention or completely by, you know, individual um, spectators' experience. So there, there are some common grounds that we can identify, even if, you know, some uh, can miss or there are some conditions where uh, it's going to, keep me from completely understand those, you know, uh, aspects or relationships and thoughts. And so like sound, for example, as, as I said, if someone is like eating and like, you know, talking too much behind me, then I may miss it. Um, or if people without a certain background may miss some of the illusions, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. We can still identify if someone point that out to you or if 
we learn about the history or context, or if we if we read some reviews or um, other uh, materials that'll help you to kind of identify. How much does a film have an obligation to address an audience equally, depending on on how they come? To the movie, and what I mean by that is, when I teach a philosophy class, uh, I will often have students who are in their seventh philosophy course and students who are in their first philosophy course, and I have mm-hmm. to constantly go back and forth, and I'll say some things that are more sophisticated, and then I'll have to explain it to the to the new students, and and some things will go over people's heads, and but it's it's my obligation as a good teacher to really keep everyone in mind. If a mm-hmm. film focuses on one specific audience, if it isn't interested in the uninformed, or if it isn't interested, if it only speaks to the inexperienced, or if it if it has a point of view that only the working class will, will respond to. Is that okay? Is that exclusionary? If we create a film that isolates itself from a certain population, is that unethical? Or can films just address as narrow an audience as the creator wants? I, I don't think any film is is kind of uh, is trying to reach out every single individual spectator. Um, so, I mean, like I, I think there are different genres or categories to apply to think about what this film is uh, is doing with certain types of audiences, and so. Um, say commercial cinema or you know blockbusters uh, versus say art cinema and thought to experimental films definitely addressing different uh, types of audiences and we cannot really judge in terms of um, you know this one doesn't really I mean we can like laugh at it as being snobbish and such but like it doesn't it doesn't mean that it's excluding certain types of audiences um, I think there's a target audience for a particular set of films or a particular genre or a particular national cinemas and such. Um, I don't think any single film is addressing everyone. Like, I'm sure there are people who don't like Casablanca. You know, some, some audiences may not find that kind of sad ending satisfactory, uh, right? And so uh, even very popular films, uh, you know, Avatar, I hated it. And so, like, I, I, don't think, I don't think any single film can please every single audience. That's impossible, isn't it? I, I, I have to admit, um, I have Avatar and I've been trying to watch it for like three years. <laughs> and every time I and now there's the new one coming out. So every time I start, I, my body just says no. And I, I haven't even watched enough of it to know that I'm not interested in it. It just there's there's this gut reaction. And I think this goes back to the sense of, of who it's for, but also this what we bring to the to the cinema. Um, I guess I have to ask before we take a break, which we will in a few minutes. Mo- a lot of people, at least in the United States, use the term movie when they're talking about these things. But scholars use the the the, the word film. And then, of course, cinema means the, the, the sort of the whole context. Is there mm-hmm. a difference between a movie and a film? Or is that just academic formality, England versus the United States? You know? What what are those two different words? How do they how do they relate to one another? 
I think films kind of now the term film is being used inclusively, but I think the film is referring to its medium, celluloid, so to speak, right? And so, um, it's, it's, I mean, if you think about other types of art, like painting, sculpture, not r- like usually like called by their medium, we don't call, call it, you know, marble or clay or <laughs> pigment right. and things, but it's more about like the, actions and artistic activities like painting or, you know, sculpting. But I think cinema has this peculiarity to refer to the medium or material, they say. And, uh, but now the, the, the problem is, is that film is not used often. Now it's digital and such. And so materiality is not really the kind of the major ground to classify film as an art form. But I think some of the uh, you know scholars, including myself, are really clinging on to <laughs> the, the idea of, of film. I, I think the kind of the whole history of film theories or film scholars in the beginning is that what makes a film a good film, and uh, uh, you know, comparing to other art forms, they wanted to see what film can do that uh, what other art forms cannot do, and so they're kind of thinking at the kind of material that is different from, say, other um, art forms or media, painting, music, and such. And so um, the kind of medium-specific elements is something that will make film a good film rather than, you know, storytelling is kind of across uh, many different art forms and media, right? Novel or, you know, even painting has certain kind of like biblical storytelling in it. So storytelling is not really unique to film, but what is it that that's uh, kind of specific to film? And a lot of aesthetic um, theories about film argue for something that only a film can do, uh, what other art forms cannot do. I think that's that's the kind of the the kind of the um, the origin of kind of a kind of aesthetic approach to film when film was a new art form people think that it's you know photography or film cannot be art because it's just mechanical reproduction um, and there is a kind of uh, urge to defend it as an art form and and then what is it that makes film an, a good film or makes it an art form uh, that's why the kind of materiality plays an important part I think but then after 70s onward I think there's kind of shift to more kind of spectatorial experience or political contacts. And so there's kind of, you know, diversified in terms of what makes a, a, a film good film kind of question. That is going to be an excellent question to address once we get back from the break. So in anticipation, I will warn you and the listeners (laughs) that I am going to ask you specifically what film can do that other art forms can't, and then we'll dive right in. But before that, you're listening to Jin Hee Choi and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. 
Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions in Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. I'm talking with Jinhee Choi about what makes a movie good. And we've been talking about the experience of viewing a film and the way that that changes uh, the perception of the film. But we haven't yet gotten to talking about films in and of themselves. And that's what we're going to start to do in a minute. But it occurs to me that, that I really miss director's commentaries for a while. When movies came out on DVD and then Blu-ray, you had the option of listening to the director talk about the process of the film and the stories behind the film. But there was also something, I don't know, that was dissatisfying about this at the same time. Uh, about 40 years ago, John Berger wrote a very famous book called Ways of Seeing. And it was about, in particular, the way that we looked at art in museums. And he had this, this very astute criticism that changed the way that museums handled paintings. Because what he would say is that when you listen to commentary about the painting or when you read the label on a painting, what it always did was just record the process of ownership. This person handed it to this person, which who handed it to this person, who sold it to this person. And that was about proving its authenticity and proving its value. But that it didn't talk about the brushstrokes or the conversation between this uh, painting and another painting. And it was so effective that it actually changed the way that museums started talking about their paintings. And what I found with a lot of director's commentary was that a lot of the discussion was about gossip, was about this funny thing that happened or the way that a, an actor engaged with another actor. And there was very minimal discussion about the shots and the flow and different ways that they could have lit the scene. And I would really love to have that. So I guess, Jinhee, before I get to the question that I promised I would ask before the break, I want to ask you, to what extent do we learn about films when we see alternative cuts or like the director's cut or something like that, or when we are able to see deleted scenes or when the director tells us, oh, I wanted this to be a dolly shot, but in the end we ended up using a, a drone or something like that. How important in understanding a film is what might have been as opposed to what we see as the finished product? Would you, would you buy like Blade Runner's director's cut, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I interviewed, or I still interview directors occasionally, but I tried not to because not so many directors are very articulate in terms of the elements that you're like interested in learning about, uh, as, as you mentioned. So, but some directors are very articulate in terms of the shots and then or their kind of you know scripts and and um, and 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 such, and so. I guess it it depends, but uh, I guess what what I'm getting is that directors' comments or intentions, as we discussed before the break, do not really uh, dictate 
the even the films the films themselves I think film there are they kind of set the boundaries but how how all these kind of you know, specific elements in the films kind of work together sometimes uh, you know it betrays the the directors or other people like you know cinematographers or you know kind of art directors or other all all the uh, you know those staffs who are involved. Um, so they're kind of putting the boundaries and they have certain goals and aims and intentions, but I don't think it's complete. I mean, a film itself is completely determined by it, uh, because there's so many different ways that elements can interact with one another. Uh, and, um, that, that's also kind of relate to, um, individual experiences of, um, the spectator audiences. And so, um, I think what, uh, how much intention or commentary dictate or gives the authority to them versus how those kind of contests can help one to kind of appreciate the films more. So I'm more interested in why do we want to have a conversation about a particular film that we really appreciate? Why do we look up reviews? Why do, what, do we look up reviews that I kind of share the view with? Or why do I want to talk about this particular film with a friend of mine or my colleague, I think the film kind of creates certain conversation. And um, in order to have a conversation rather than express like what I like or what I dislike about this film, I think there is some something that we want to point to the film, how the film invites me to engage with it in a certain way. Of course, that doesn't mean that everyone feels the same, but I think that kind of conversation is a desire that we kind of uh, kind of to share the experience uh, with others. It's not completely isolated experience, even if I've seen it by myself on, on my laptop or whatever, but I want to have a conversation. I tweet about it or I Instagram or whatever. So there's a desire to share the experience, especially the ones that we appreciate or some people kind of dismiss things or you know, say how much they hated the film on tweeters and things. But I think that is what's important. And then I think the film is a ground to have that conversation and intentions or commentaries is only part of it, not the, you know, the whole thing that's there. So I'm kind of interested in why do we want to come up with this kind of, kind of thinking beyond the films themselves, the director or cinematographer or editors and, and such. So, um, and then we can kind of branching out to the context or genre, historical moments, and then its relationship to its kind of social political conditions and such. And so from the film, my but you know, my immediate experience of the film, and then we can kind of branch things out, and then we want to have conversations about it with others. I think that's what makes a, a film kind of interesting object to discuss. Because unlike other art forms, many people appreciate watching films. I think that's another kind of merit of a film as an art form, I I I think. You described uh, films as, as as inviting people to view it and inviting this conversation, but there are mm -hmm. also films that intentionally invite the audience, I don't want to say not to engage, but to be repulsed by it, to make the experience incredibly difficult, to make you have to work for it. Um, a, a Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac series where, where, where you're supposed to dislike the film and not want to be in it. What's happening there with a film when the, the, the creators decide that their goal is actually to push the viewer away as opposed to pull them in? 
why is that an important option for films to have and what, and what's its goal? Um, I, I suppose <laughs> some films are trying to re- kind of uh, make the audience feels re- uh, kind of a dislike the film. It, it, that's, but I think that usually kind of makes you think about the, what is the kind of the relationship between film and uh, you as as a viewer, so it can be self-reflexive about the film's inviting, um, or you know, intentionally not inviting um, to engage it in a certain way. So, kind of push the boundary and envelope, and reflect upon our conventional or usual ways of kind of engaging with with films. I guess that's one way to think about. And um, there is also a context where that that becomes almost a kind of competition among filmmakers you know how, how you know kind of slow films and even slower films and and things like that and so um i don't know like you know philosopher like kendall walton talks about there are categories to bring into right so certain films are kind of romantic and then nostalgic sentimental some films uh spectatorial effects are not far from those. And so we cannot really apply the same kind of category to, you know, kind of appreciate different types of films. Um, so that's why, you know, we, we expect certain things uh, from a certain genre, but there are films that definitely violate our expectations and that can be a fun sometimes. Sometimes we can think about, you know, our own experience, why that's the case, or we can look into the industry, why the industry promotes this kind of film or, you know, film festivals promote this kind of filmmaking and practices. And so I, I think I think we really just stop just at the film, but that doesn't mean that uh, film... I guess what I'm trying to say is that film as an object invites us, you know, to engage in different ways. But uh, when we look at our own experience, there are different ways to... Uh, answer those kind of questions, either from the films themselves or kind of branching out to think about its relationship to others, uh, other aspects. Um, so, you know, we can think about film in the kind of at the center of a concentric circle, and there's a genre that kind of the films has to engage if it's a crime films and there's kind of narrative or you know, aesthetics that, that uh, a film inherits. Then there's also film industry, the outside circle, and then there's a kind of politics and social political circumstances. And so we can think about from the film how it kind of branches out, or you can come from the outside and from the you know kind of your interest in South Korean politics, and then and then you maybe kind of approach Korean films that way. That's another way to go. Um, although I discourage students to do so. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I wanna um. In in a minute, I want to ask you about the South Korean context and 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 films and and dive into that area of your work. But I do want to ask the question that I promised uh, earlier that that you brought up, which is the very basic question: what what can film do as an art form that other art forms can't? What makes film special and unique? I think we kind of uh, you know scholars wanted to come up with it. And then uh, uh, 
gave up in the end, I think. So I mean, like, <laughs> I think there's a, this kind of like jargon that's called like medium specificity. There are things that only films can do, right? So in terms of like audiovisual combinations, but then there are other, you know, art forms do that, like opera or in you know, a play, theaters and, and such. Um, it's kind of you know, two-dimensional or three-dimensional and, and such. But uh, I, I, I don't think there's any particular one single aspect or medium specific elements that will define the aesthetic merit of, of a film so it should I think we should diversify like as we talked about different mode of address genre national cinema uh, film directors um, and, and such so I don't think there's one overarching medium specific element that'll make film a good film is a certain way of making films inherently more valuable or more impressive. And, and what I mean by that is there's a very famous short film by Man Ray uh, where he, he appears to be cutting someone's eye open uh, with a razor. And this was a hundred years ago. And he did this by layering film and, and celluloid and layering it upon layering it upon layering it. And it was tremendously impressive. It was part of the surrealist movement. And it was as much a piece of, of film art the way that a painting was than a, a, a large scale film. Now with CGI, we can do anything like that with ease. And there is a sense among some people that practical effects are more impressive and 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 have more emotional punch, say, than CGI effects. Is there a sense that certain old traditions, certain old methods are better, more valuable, more impressive, need to be preserved, have a value in and of itself? Or is it just... As technology moves forward, the creators play with that new technology, and it's just the exploration that, that has value. You're right in the sense that some of the experimental films that actually you know, repeat the same cut over and over again just to show how oppressive certain moments in like melodrama say, that, that they did by like actually cut the celluloid and put them together to repeat Versus now with editing software, you can do it easily nowadays, right? And so one is more labor intensive. And then the other is kind of done more kind of like, you know, through technology. And um, I, I guess the kind of the, what, it, what, is it, what is it that, I guess the, then you have to come up with the context. And then what is it that this film is trying to uh, challenge, say, versus like, you know, kind of common CGI, CGI effect nowadays that, is a kind of norm rather than challenging something. So uh, it, it is kind of interesting to kind of compare and contrast similar aesthetic kind of styles, say uh, from classical era or experimental film like and, and nowadays, but I think they're in conversation with different kind of types of filmmaking. And so uh, we can the, bring the two together, but at the same time, we have to think about different contexts. What what, what kind of conversation are they having, um, so to speak, rather than whether one is more valuable than the other isn't. So I, I think historical context sometimes is very important um, in kind of situating or kind of articulating the aesthetic merit. So if you think about like philosophy art, say, 
there are all these attempts to what makes art art. And the previous attempts was trying to find in the, the artwork uh, itself, like aesthetic experience or, you know, unity and diversity, some, something in, in, in the artwork. But then that kind of approach, approach has been uh, abandoned. And then moving towards more kind of context institution or, you know, what makes art is actually the kind of the art world that kind of claims but art world doesn't exist art out of vacuum. It is a kind of aesthetic historical context and how certain kind of innovative art is kind of valued for that reason, so to speak. So I think there's a kind of similarity in terms of philosophy of art versus film theories, initially trying to locate something in the film medium, like celluloid film or kind of certain techniques, but then that doesn't seem to really kind of work in a way and kind of branching it out to various contexts, like film festivals or art cinema or crime films or popular cinemas or national cinemas, documentaries. And so we cannot really compare them, just kind of picking uh, one uh, from one kind of uh, category, uh, another from different category, and then compare the two. It's like comparing like apples and oranges, so to speak. So what makes an apple good apple among apples versus what makes orange a good orange among oranges rather than like comparing the two uh, out of the context, so to speak. So if if the audience will allow me to do a plug, you mentioned the art world. Uh, and I think the third or fourth season of this show, we actually had Arthur Danto on before he passed mm -hmm. away, who was the biggest proponent of the art world. And so I recommend that people go to the archives and look for that. But um, mm -hmm. it was a great, interesting conversation. I was thrilled to be able to talk to him before he passed. He's a brilliant man. Mm -hmm. um, but apples and oranges. So you work on South Korean cinema. When mm -hmm. you think about South Korean cinema, do you think of it as apples and oranges, that South Korean cinema is not Japanese cinema, it's not American cinema, it's not Australian cinema, or when one thinks about a specific country's film tradition, is it a more cosmopolitan approach and films are thought about and evaluated in terms of the universe of films rather than in terms of the boundaries of national identity? Um, I mean, like, even within, like, Korean cinema, there are crime films, melodramas, comedy, you know, action thrillers, or different types of films. So, I mean, even within a kind of single national cinema, again, you cannot just kind of generalize Korean cinema as a single entity, right? And so you cannot really compare Korean, like, indie films by women directors late, lately versus, like, you know, blockbuster kind of uh, crime films that will deal with uh, North and South relations and thought. But, uh, you know, as, as a scholar who's teaching um, East Asian cinema, like Hong Kong, Japan, and like, you know, Japanese and Korean cinemas and, and such, is that there is a kind of, uh, kind of uh, process of pigeonholing national cinema in, into its political, sociopolitical context, uh, which is one way to approach national cinema but uh, not, I mean, I'm kind of joking sometimes saying not every single Korean cinema is about South Korea. But right. I think film, yeah, like there's a tendency to kind of use Korean film. There are tons, right? And the Korean film instrumentally to learn about Korea. Of course, Korean films or any other national cinema 
registered certain historical contexts and then elements of culture, you know, religions and such. But not every single uh, South Korean cinema is up about uh, South Korea. But there is a kind of like a even students want to learn Korea through films rather than appreciate the films kind of in a, a style or in a, a style of merits, so to speak, values uh, in and of themselves. So uh, there is this kind of like um, um, national identity that um, people try to read into rather than acknowledge there's no single national identity uh, that we can define uh, for any nation, uh, I, I don't think. But there's a kind of like, oh, South Korea has developed so rapidly. So this is about this kind of compressed kind of like, you know, process of modernizations and such. But, you know, I, I don't think every, every South Korean film is about that, or that is a little bit limiting to approach different types of Korean cinema, like, oranges and apples of Korean cinema uh, uh, and then just bring in one kind of national identity or culture uh, to read Korean cinema uh, through a particular lens, uh, so to speak. So I'm feeling guilty because I watched Parasite, um, which I actually couldn't get through. I was told it was a comedy and I found it incredibly depressing. And old boy and and um and then of course there's Swid games which isn't a film but but is a tv show and um and my first reaction was what the hell's going on over there <laughs> i mean these movies the, the, the movies they're clearly about capitalism and and class relations and feeling um trapped and all that sort of stuff is that is that the wrong reaction it, uh, it, i mean obviously there are hundreds and hundreds of films and i haven't seen almost all of them Right. So to generalize from these films is is unfair. But at the same time, there seems to be some sort of thematic thing that 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 made me aware of a certain kind of pain of economic growth that I just couldn't get out of my head when 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 I was watching these various things. Is that the wrong way to, to ask the question since I'm now thinking of the context. I'm now thinking of the politics. Or is it okay because the movie brought that question to me as opposed to me understanding the movie from that question? Well, I, I think there, I mean, the films or, you know, Netflix series that you mentioned right. uh, are abstract enough, I think. You know, you can say it's about neoliberalism and, and such. It, it, I mean, that's one of the reasons why it appeals to many, I think. Because the specificity is diluted um, in the kind of three film, three you know, films and television series that you mentioned, and so, um, yes, I mean they bring up those questions, but how specific is it? Um, Squid Game, how specific is it to South Korea? Uh, I think I think it's more about like a you know kind of computer games it's almost like following martial arts kind of you know kind of narrative uh, I had an interview with like BBC radio 
about Squid Game. And then the question is again, like how specific is this to, to South Korean culture? And I said, no, like if you look at like some of the martial arts from like Hong Kong, there is kind of, you know, martial arts competitions and half of them will die in the first round. And then like, you know, like, and then it kind of narrows down. And so there's kind of narrative structure that's common to, uh, you know, many cultures. And I think especially like uh, video games and you know, computer games also follow that kind of like, you know, structure. And, and if it's kind of alludes to this kind of capitalism or new, neoliberalism, yes, it, it can. But how specific is it to South Korea? So then, and, and, and I, I, I don't want this to sound challenging in the sense that I'm, I'm, I'm questioning your work, but, but if, if the goal is to sort of, ask about the lack of specificity what's the goal in studying south korean cinema why are you interested in that particular area and what do you get by focusing uh on this um place of origin as opposed to say uh thrillers uh, across the world or rom-coms across the world or the description of, of of girls across the world what what as a scholar are you looking for when you focus your lens on uh, a film culture and a creation from a particular uh national identity um I guess two things. I'm in a kind of a, a, a position where I I could um, appreciate subtle specificities um, in in a set of South Korean films, say, because of language or you know cultural backgrounds and thoughts. But there's also expectation on me because I'm uh, I'm still like in terms of citizenship South Korean. Right. So there is, I think, American identity politics where like you are expected to do something uh, that's to do huh. with your cultural origin, uh, so to speak. And so, I mean, I studied analytic philosophy, which is nothing to do with South Korea. <laughs> right. But then but, but then when I moved to film studies, uh, it was an expectation and that got me a job. <laughs> so. And, and, and- and I don't want to diminish that because, as I told my wife when we moved to North Dakota, uh, most philosophers get one job offer in their entire lives, right? And 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 we are the lucky ones. So so, but is that is that a form of ghettoization by expecting the identity politics, expecting you to work on stuff in the, in your national uh, in your country of origin, but also with the American film industry, with the Academy Awards, right? There's all of the awards and then there's the foreign film award, right? As if every country is interchangeable other than the United States, as if every, you know, as if it's fair to say that, you know, these, that, that, America's films uh, compete with one another and, and, and maybe English films, but that uh, a film from Bollywood has to compare to Hong Kong film, which has to compare to uh, Iranian film. So is this all the, the same process of, of, of a sort of ghettoization, ethnic ghettoization, or is there is there merit to this, I don't know, segregation for lack of a better term? Well, Academy is an American award, right? So it's right. kind of dealing with it's dealing with more, more or less American films, 
And so they have a section, it's a gesture, but I don't think it really kind of like, uh, even like canned and, you know, all this kind of like big festivals, um, you know, they, they have this kind of awards in terms of, you know, uh, you know, you know, different areas and, and such, but how much authority do they have? Um, I, I think uh, it's, it's, it's uh, festivals are governed by certain politics or their kind of benchmarks and such. And so nothing is kind of neutral. So like can has certain kind of uh, validity for some certain things. Um, for example, Koreada, I, I didn't think that Shoplifter is his best film, but he, he got the award for it at Cannes. Uh, Pong, I think I didn't think that. Um, uh, uh, what is it? The um, the uh, Parasite is, is isn't is his best film, but he got the award uh, for it. Um, and so it's I, I think sometimes it's more cumulative. It's an acknowledgement of either kind of national cinema or authorship, uh, not necessarily based on a single film, so to speak. And so yes. Uh, I, I I don't know how much kind of authority people attribute to Academy <laughs> Awards for foreign film awards. It's only kind of like a small section of the awards, and but it's an American awards to celebrate American films, I would say. And so um, I, don't, I, I don't think too much about Academy Awards, to be honest. But, but I think in a in a way, Pong's awarding, I think, is is a, is an acknowledgement of Korean film industry as a commercial industry, and Pong as a as a kind of director, as an author within that industry. So, um, whereas if you think about Koreada, it's more kind of not the industry per se; it's more art cinema ish. Whereas Pong combines it too. He's very articulate in terms of aesthetics, uh, but then he's also working with commercial kind of generic kind of conventions. So like black comedy, it's not just comedy and, and such. And so um, different standards play, I think, when this kind of big festivals or awards acknowledge. Um, but uh, it's one of the many awards in the world, not just the, the only award, I think, that has that much authority to me. How is uh, is America the most um, nationalistic of film industries? I mean, I know uh, Bollywood is 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 very focused on Bollywood, and and I'm, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I think that there is something artificial about this tendency to combine to to focus on films that are from a certain region as opposed to films that are of a certain genre and you're getting to that with with the various different festivals how how artificial are the categories of films, right? Can you have a thriller that should be in the romantic comedy? Could you have a um, action film that really is art film? How artificial are the 
are the way that we describe films because really many films can be in three or four different genres or three or four different categories and we are either lazy or we have commercial needs that force us to put films in boxes that they shouldn't be put into. Well, I mean, like, you know, when you kind of have to collect your ethnic identity, there are multiple boxes, right? Uh, so, so some people will just check one box. Some people have to check many boxes or you check other, right? And so uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't think like, you know, uh, one, I don't think there, there's certain types of genres um, means that, a single film falls under on, on, under only one genre, right? Of course, there. Are, I mean, especially South Korean films, because they they try to reach out many different types of audiences. It combines many 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 elements of uh, different genres. You cry, you're shocked, and you know, sentimental. People call it like you know, um, in a good way, versatile. Some people say hybrid. Um, I, I would say uneven, but you know, it, it. You know, is it like because Koreans like everything? That's kind of more reductive way of thinking. Is it more kind of industry driven? You know, if you're targeting certain amount of audiences and you have to reach out this type of audiences and you have elements of that, it's almost gift box with several elements in it, so to speak. Uh, whereas it's more if you're if the film's kind of more targeting specific audiences and it may be more faithful to certain kind of single or one or few one or two generic conventions. And so, yes, there are films that, uh, you know, uh, inherit many different genres and aesthetics. Some films are more kind of like, you know, just digging one kind of uh, genre. Some people defy uh, kind of identifiable genres. And um, there are art cinema conventions um, that many filmmakers are kind of follow or challenge. Um, so, but festivals actually kind of benchmark their uh, particular festivals for uh, specific um, aspects. I think the three big uh, European ones usually appreciate authorship, but then even Venice trying to differentiate from Cannes and, 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 and such. And so, um, and filmmakers know that. And sometimes they are kind of actually exploit that kind of expectations um, as well. And then it also depends on the jury, um, particular year, um, sponsorship, um, marketing. There are many things to explain, but um, I, I guess it goes back to the question, how much is in, in the film versus how much is in the context? If let's, let's imagine <clears throat> there was a, a, a Korean film crew, director, cinematographer, a writer, etc. But all of the actors were not Korean. Let's say they were a mixture of of American and and South Asian or whatever. You know, just not Korean. And it didn't take place in Korea. If there were no clear visible symbols that it was a Korean film, would you be able to tell that it was a Korean film? Would is there something about Korean films that are so uniquely Korean that even if all of the surface uh, indications were 
um, hidden that it took place in London and that it was about, uh, you know, the history of the Crusades. I don't know, whatever <laughs> that 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 you could tell that it was a Korean film um, or. Yeah, I guess the question explains itself. Can you would you be able to tell a, a film was a Korean film, even if all of the surface uh, signs did not indicate that? Well, why do we have to say it's Korean or otherwise? You know, I mean, there. I mean, the film that I'm going to teach, like in a few days, it's called "A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night." Um, I think it was shot in the U.S., but uh, all uh, the language is in Iranian. The director is an American with Iranian ethnic background. The actor is a German who speaks Iranian. Like, but why do we have to identify it as either Iranian? Or American indie or anything. I mean, if you look at the credits of like in an internet movie database, it's it kind of lists several things. You know, like it's a kind of in terms of finances or actors and actresses. And there are many films that cannot fall under one um, national category. Um, and I think it's increasingly more. I think it's it's, it's increasingly challenging to identify as Korean or you know. Um, um, non-korean uh some some people kind of uh kind of call it kind of derogative why i think there are a lot of like um co-production i think you know maybe like 10 years ago they call like european pudding so it's kind of you know it's a kind of like money's coming from like france italy spain and like and then you have this kind of like i don't know set in obscure country or something or it's a kind of mythic stories and and such and so uh kind of attempt to reach out kind of different territories but uh usually doesn't work very well and so but i mean if you think about john Wu, you know kind of the hong kong director he, he made many kind of action films in the U.S., I think Mission Impossible Two was by um, uh, by him and Face Off and, and things. And so, but do we have to call like Hong Kong cinema because of the, the director is 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 from Hong Kong? Um, I mean, like you know, it doesn't need to be kind of under like single label, so to speak. It's Hong Kong cinema, or and it, it doesn't really reside in the surface, not necessarily. So, and um, that kind of different layers sometimes make th- films interesting sometimes make the film less interesting <laughs> so so then i mean then to to push this i mean is is the only reason why you work on south korean cinema because that's what the job demands and that there's something artificial about the category south korean cinema because you could use any other category to ask similar or analogous questions that that when we talk about you know if we're talking about uh i mean i'm i'm still really stuck on this question as to how to create the boundaries of an area of film investigation. And so that's why I asked about the the question of, you know, if all the surface indications were hidden, you know, but it was uh, a South Korean studio, is there something South Korean? And your response is, well, it could be anything. So then, so then is the fact that you are a South Korean film scholar just an accident of how to get a job at King's College? And, and, and we are all just going to, pretend that it's a real category and 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 read your stuff because it's interesting or is there some external need external cultural demand external social and political uh necessity 
to have this category of South Korean cinema that deserves attention in and of itself? I think those are two different questions. Like, I mean, am I, uh, did I land on King's College job by accident? Like, I think combination of things. I don't think they hired me just because I, I do South Korean cinema, because I do philosophy as well. And I work on other national cinemas like Hong Kong and Japan, uh, not just South Korean, but uh, but then I do write. I mean, I, I kind of work on various things. And South Korean cinema is one of my uh, research interests and in areas, not the only one, but I do have benefits because I, you know, speak Korean fluently, and you know I can, you know, research on uh, both languages, and and so I mean I, I'm in a kind of better position, or I, I'm in a position where I can actually um, bring different kind of scholarship into conversation, so to speak. So. Uh, but at the same time, there's a demands in terms of the job prospects and ex- expectations, and it's accident. But when I was working on South Korean cinema as a you know as a graduate student, South Korean cinema was, wasn't that big. But in the past ten years, not just Korean cinema, but popular culture grew globally. So there is a demand, but that's almost kind of by accident. Uh, but then I do change the objects of my study. Uh, you know, I, I work on Ozu, Japanese director. I did uh, work on the kind of Korean director's adaptation of Hong Kong cinema. Then it's about the relationship between Hong Kong and Korean cinema in terms of crime films. And then I also need to think about, you know, the crime film genre um, and and such. And so, um, yes, there's some uh, accidental nature. Uh, (laughs) But at the same time, but at the same time, I think Korean cinema is one of my research areas, but not the only one I was, I should say. You have two PhDs. You have a PhD in in philosophy as well as film studies. You talk about being an analytic philosopher. It's very hard to define analytic philosophy for our audiences, but it, it's um, a 20th century school of philosophy that focuses on the assumptions of language and the assumptions of thought and really looks at analyzing particular items in and of themselves. And so the question I have for you is, and if you didn't follow that at home, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> but um, what does the analytic background bring to your film studies? Does the analytic philosophy training give you something, a particular perspective, a, a, a special approach to looking at films? H- how do you mesh the two backgrounds and the two specializations? I, I think philosophical training is beneficial for every profession. <laughs> I, would say. I do too. Study. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I, I think in the beginning, it was really hard to shift a gear because analytic training is very particular, as, as, you, as you mentioned. And then film studies expectation is actually like, uh, expect me to explore the kind of specificity of Korean cinema. Uh, when you know, I don't. Sometimes I don't see that in in certain films, um, and I don't think Korean cinema should be evaluated just because of the kind of specificity uh, that some films embody. Um, so I have to kind of shift gears and and thoughts. But I I I, I like. I mean, especially the the kind of writing that I that I enjoy is that I set up certain questions either from my own experience or because of the context and such, and then I set up some questions to answer when I watch Korean films or East Asian films or um, avant garde or you know 
uh, and thought. Um, and uh, I enjoy how, how to articulate my initial impressions into something rigorous and coherent. And so the, that's where the philosophical training comes in, rather than kind of dwelling on my impressions and experiences. How, what is it that, it, it, that I, I, as you mentioned, like certain films invites us to think or appreciate or experience in a certain way? And so I kind of bring up certain questions and help to articulate that. And if I feel like I have answered you know, those questions, I feel very satisfied and you know, kind of really appreciate writing process. And so kind of articulate my ideas, my experiences, and um, the objects can change, but I think philosophical training actually helps you to articulate. Um, and then kind of, you know, I always kind of ask conceptual questions um, and that's actually coming from philosophical training, I, I think. And, and as I s said, some of the kind of like philosophical approaches to art, I think, applies to film as well. Like, you know, when there's a kind of approach to identify what's distinctive ab about film as an artistic medium. Same with art form. I think like as you've talked about Dante, like Dante or Dickies, all this kind of thing. And so I can see some parallels in terms of theorizing or kind of trying to generalize about certain art forms. And then what are some of the challenges in that kind of approach? And uh, in a kind of particular set of writing, I think how to conceptualize certain questions that I have or how to articulate my initial, um, you know, like or dislike um, uh, in a particular set of films. I think philosophical training definitely helps, but uh, you know, apparently, or sometimes it was hard to shift gear because <laughs> I was trained in like cognitive <laughs> theories, and uh, it's not about really kind of you know national specificity at, at all. But I enjoy doing both, and you know, sometimes I do write kind of philosophical rather than just analyze films, and so. I combine the two, not necessarily <laughs> interdisciplinary between the two disciplines. Well, you're clearly doing it well because you've got a job at King's College. So, you know, um, uh, no one can say you're not doing it excellently. Um, I, I, I want to, we're almost out of time. So I want to ask the, the question of the episode um, and I'll, I'll give you an out, so to speak, because it is, of course, a, a ridiculous question. The, the title of the episode is What Makes a Film Good? And so I want to ask you what makes a film good, but I also want to ask you, is that an answerable question? Are there standards that we can really look at, point to, that makes a film good? If so, can you articulate some of them, or is this a really unanswerable question? And it's a vast discussion and discourse and debate that, you know, takes... Uh, a career to to identify. I, I think like we should slightly rephrase the question. I think what are some uh, of the standards? There's your philosophical training right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what are yeah. some of the the standards that we have to bring into to think about a film, good film, right? There's no kind of general uh, aesthetic standards uh, that will make a film good. But I think the, the relevant question is what kind of standards, whether it's a kind of genre or artistic kind of, you know, merits, styles, authorship, national cinema, what are some of, I think that's what we've been talking about, categories and such. What are some of the standards that we can bring into in order to think about a particular set of films? And I think what interests me is why do we want to talk about good films with others? 
And you know, where do we go go from that conversation? So I mean, we talked about either the the to the films themselves, or its relationship to something external to the films, or its relationship to a particular audience member, like you know, particular experience and such. And so it's all all about like kind of relation. But I think either starting from the outside, moving into film, or from the film to the you know external things. But I think that what makes kind of popular art form interesting. Um, in, in, in the sense that it, it is a kind of entry point or gateway to learn about things, um, but not necessarily as an instrumental kind of a device, but it kind of, I think it's something that we appreciate to think about the relationship and how much can we share that um, in an excitement uh, with others. I think that kind of conversation is what, what interests me. And I think that's why I keep looking at things. I think no one is kind of, okay, I, I like the film. That's it. I look up reviews. I look up like, you know, um, interviews, which, which I sometimes I appreciate and I get disappointed, as you said. But trying to kind of re- kind of make a connection outside of the films themselves. And we are outside of the film as well. And so I'm the first one, I guess, the, the as a spectator, to reflect upon my experience. And then that, that's a kind of particular relationship or interaction with the film. And then others have different interactions. And then that kind of conversation is what uh, makes a, a good film in, in a way. Like if many films reaches out to many people in different contexts, and if the film enables us to have that conversation, then it's, it's certainly a good thing, but I think in a different standards apply. <laughs> There's no single single like single like a standard that we can identify. I think that's really useful because it it stops it from being completely overwhelming, and that people can ask the question from the perspective of the genres or the categories that they like. Would you be willing to send us? a couple lists, maybe five South Korean films that we should see, and then five films globally that we could see that I could uh, give to our audience um, so that they can pursue this on their own? Yeah, I can make 10, 10. <laughs> okay, good. Films. Oh, yeah, sure. You could. I was being, I, I was, I was being conservative there. Yeah, you could give, send us 30 if you want, but yes, 10. No, and I 10 mean like four, be- four, like a global, globally. Yeah. I used to pick one from each decade, like 1910, uh, 1920s. I oh, guess, ex- oh like excellent. That. Okay. And so, I mean, it's totally personal, subjective, uh, but I can I can pick ten, you know, kind of a, a, a kind of century of from the century of the cinema, and then that, I can pick maybe ten like Korean films uh, from like post-war and then up until contemporary. That would be wonderful because, and I'm speaking for the audience now as well as myself, one of the things that makes these conversations so so great is that you're opening the doors for us and now we all want to to, to learn more and apply what you told us. So with that in mind, Jinhee, thank you so much for joining us on Why. It was a pleasure and I have so many more questions to ask, but you know, we only have so much time and if we're longer than a movie, no one's going to listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for inviting me. And I hope that I kind of, you know, I tried to answer some questions, but, but I think it's better to to leave the questions open, so to speak. I, I think that's great. And, and, and the show is called Why It's Not Called Because. <laughs> anyway, folks at home, you have been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein and Jin Hee Choi on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this. 
Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We were talking with Jinhee Choi and asking the question, what makes a film good? And not surprising, of course, there isn't one clear answer to that. The closest we get is asking, what are the successful films in a particular genre? And what standards we bring into the question, right? Is the standard escapism? Is the standard cinematography? Is the standard storytelling? Right? Is the standard that it makes us uncomfortable. There is a film for every emotion. There is a film for every experience. And what films do is present a mirror to us to help us understand our own experience, but also windows into other people's worlds that we then see through ourselves. We see it through a director. We see it through a, a cinematographer. We see it through an editor. We see it through a joint project because the making of the film and the watching of the film is a joint project. It is a group of people trying to create something together that is both a product and a process, both a result and an experience. And the most you can do about films, really, are ask the same questions you ask about yourself. You know, you don't ask, am I a good human being? You ask, am I a moral human being? You ask, am I a physically fit human being? You ask, am I a good parent? You ask, am I a good teacher? You ask, did I make a difference? These are the same kinds of approaches that you have to take to film. And we can look at a film through its national origin. We can talk about South Korean cinema, and then we'll have different standards. Or we can look at it through the global lens. We can look at it through the tradition of, of, of conversations that it's having. Is this influenced by this director, or does it have shades of, of, of that film? All of these things are the things that we bring to the film. So all of this is to say that when we ask what makes a film good, we have to ask first what we care about, what is important to us, what we want to analyze. And if we can do that, then we start really getting a sense of the richness of the tradition of film, of the deep, sophisticated conversations that we can be a part of while we're being entertained, while we're being reflective, and while we're being, I don't know, a contributor to the art world as a viewer and as a co-creator. And that's what makes films so great because they can be anything and they keep coming. And so there's always more to watch and what more can you ask for? With that said, 
If you've been listening to this episode on Sunday evening on Prairie Public, please know that there's a longer version with almost 30 more minutes of discussion that's available as a podcast at yradioshow.org or on iTunes. Please rate us on iTunes and Spotify to help spread the word about the show. And please help us continue to broadcast by contributing at yradioshow.org. Click donate in the upper right-hand corner. We exist solely based on your donations. Thank you for listening. We're grateful to have you as an audience. And as always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzflutewinestein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>